This church is beautiful. The one bad thing about it is the only flat space to put anything is a baptismal fund, and I'm unwilling to do that. And I, but I'm also unwilling to give up my, my coffee, and it's a huge dilemma. <laughs> we're going to go till what, according to the schedule, we're going to close this session off at what time? 11.45, so a little under an hour. And we'll try to make some progress, do the best we can. But again, the questions are really helpful for me. Um, your interaction, what your questions do is just pick up stuff where I've, where I've missed it. I'm not as organized as this thing makes it look. So, ha! <laughs> <laughs> that is. That's right. The Lord will commend you on the last day. <laughs> So, let her see. Where is it? And what we're talking about here is not this, but what we're talking about is the present existence of heaven. And I am just noting here that it seems that the present, quote, heaven is not subject to our ideas about location. And so I can't answer the question, where is it? Um, I, it I point out some passages for this that just lend biblical credibility to the idea that it's ambiguous as to a, a, a precise location. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 says, this is the Lord's word, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. It's just talking about little, small, baby Christians. I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now what's interesting here is that we're told that these, these are... Um, children who are Christians who have, have in some sense assigned angels or guardian angels. I just know that because of that possessive pronoun there, they're angels. So they're in some way assigned to Christians, uh, uh, which means they've got to be with them. I mean, I presume that they're with them, guarding over them. Angels, after all, are not um, uh, uh, omnipresent like God is. They can't be in more than one place at one time. And yet, we're told also that the angels are always seeing the face of my Father who is in heaven. So how can an angel be with Christians, present with them, and also be able to see the Father in heaven? It must mean that they're with the Father in heaven while they're watching. And can you see from that that I would conclude that heaven must be what? Here with us. If I have an angel that's watching over me, for instance, or protecting me, my angel is always seeing God. And I don't think that's because he can see really well, far, 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 far away, but because God is with us now in heaven. So to say that heaven's far away, I, I just don't, I don't know how you would get to that. And I, I, I'm not going to read all these. I just want you to consider some of these passages. Isaiah 6, you might remember these. This might just come right to your mind. Isaiah 6 is when Isaiah's in the temple. Remember, he doesn't leave the temple. He's not transported out of the temple, but then there is God together there with the living creatures and so forth, with the train of the robe down into the temple. So God is right there present. All of a sudden, heaven opens up, and he's there. He's in heaven, but he never left the temple. Acts chapter 6, that's the point where Stephen is being martyred. Remember how he looks up and he sees Jesus on his throne, uh, standing there, by, I think, by the throne? So Jesus is there present, Jesus is in heaven, and yet he's right there with Stephen. John on Patmos, what I'm referring to there is the book of Revelation. John is exiled to the island of Patmos. No indication that when John's, that when this vision is opened up for him and he can see this, that John goes anywhere. He stays on the island of Patmos, but he watches the, the happenings of, of heaven. And then the, this is fascinating, Second Kings, I thought about opening the Bible and looking at this one, but I'm not going to do just for time. 2 Kings 6, 17 um, is the point at which Elisha tells his servant Gehazi, um, who's terrified about the, I think, Assyrians. <laughs> Great. It says, Lord, would you open his eyes? I think something like that. And his eyes are open and he can see warriors and horses and so forth all around him, ready to pounce on the Assyrians which means that, they, that the angels and the whole company of heaven are present with us all the time. Um, they just must live in some kind of different realm or existence or dimension. Some of us were talking about this earlier. 
but the fabric of their existence is not in some other universe different from ours. The, the angels, in a sense, connect us that way. The very presence of Christ connects us that way. Um, and then finally, this verse, very precious from Hebrews chapter 12, you have come to Mount Zion. Push pause on this. My comments at the end, I'm just going to insert them here. This is a, des a description of the divine service. When we're at church, we're in heaven with angels, with God, with the spirits of the righteous, and with Jesus and his blood. This is probably the Bible justification for singing with angels and archangels, or that, that preface. Ah, sorry about that. I should remember that. With angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. So when we're here at church, we're, that's the sort of thing we're recognizing. I think this is coming from Hebrews 12, which I'm in the middle of. You have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's urging them to come to church. That's all of Hebrews is an urging of the Christians to come to church, to the divine service. And when they come to church, they're coming to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. That's, that's heaven. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. He said that's a, that's a reference to Christians. It's an old, kind of, old Testament kind of reference. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit, now look at this, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, who are the righteous? That can only be Christians. We are righteous. We apparently right now, we are the righteous who are not yet made perfect. We are righteous, but not perfected. But when we come to church, we're coming into the company of the righteous who have been made perfect, and that must be a reference to, to the saints in heaven, to the Christians who are in heaven. And to Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament, I should say Testament, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All of this I just want to point out to you is that I think that, that the present heaven defies locating. And if anything, I think, well, the Bible sometimes describes it as going up, Jesus ascended into heaven, and it's probably a signing language to get, to, to, to get our mind, to get our head around it. <coughs> But that if the Lord Jesus is with us all the time, as he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, if he's constantly and always present with us, and the saints in heaven are with the Lord, with Jesus, then it seems to me that the Lord Jesus unites us in this, the fabric of this existence with the saints. So my loved ones in Christ are not far from me. They didn't go off far away someplace. That's about the best I can describe the location. It's not different, by the way, than hell. Just for the record, um, the demons are, have been cast and chained in darkness in hell, we're told. And yet the demons are prowling around, the devil prowling around like a lion, roaring lion, looking for whom he might devour. That means he's working to tempt me. Now, how can he be chained in hell and be prowling around to tempt, to tempt me? Is because in some sense, so also, hell is not some distant, faraway place, but is also here. Um, I'm, I'm coming to the end of my ability linguistically to describe this or even conceive of it. We just have to let the Bible kind of sit where it's at. Um, this will is fascinating because what it doesn't, what it means is when I'm when I'm when I'm driving down the freeway in my car, that I can't see it, but, there are, but that I live in an angelic realm where there are battles that are happening all the time. This is not a, angels fighting demons and so forth and a spiritual battle happening off somewhere in heaven, but that if you had eyes to see it like John was given or Gehazi, you'd be able to, or, or like Isaiah, you'd be able to see that we live all the time with angels and archangels and demons tempting us and clashes and fights. Luther said that one time, if we could see the number of darts <laughs> that were pointed at arrows that were pointed at us, it would drive us to pray. Okay, finally, Revelation 6, 9 to 11. This has become very precious to me. 
This is, it, Revelation typically is difficult to understand and we need to be just really cautious and limited about how much we can, we're able to say about it. We don't always know in Revelation if it's referencing something that's literal or if it's referencing something that is figurative. Quite often Revelation is figurative and it's intended to be figurative. We are faithful when we, when we interpret Revelation figuratively. We would be un faithful to the text if we interpreted it literally when it is meant to be interpreted figuratively. It's just that it's not always really, really clear when it's talking figuratively and when it's talking literally. So don't let anybody tell you, a millennialist or something, well, you Lutherans, you don't take the Bible literally. That is false. We do take the Bible literally. To take the Bible literally means we take it the way it's meant to be taken its intended sense. So my point is to say that Revelation is challenging. We do, typically when we're reading Revelation, we, we just take as much as we can from the text and leave the rest. Always in my mind I have like a stick of butter and there's a lot of content there, but when I, when I take, I don't eat the whole thing, unless it's Pastor Clemmer. You just take a, just a little off the top. And if I can take a little off the, top, that's, that's all I'm really working to do. So I want to read this passage from Revelation 6, and then we'll turn the page and we'll, do, and we'll look at the, at the most that we can deduce from these verses, and then leave the, leave the rest. Let me read it for you. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. John is just getting a vision. There's seven seals. He's getting the fifth one here, which means he's, it, something is being revealed to him about heaven. I saw, when, I, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar... The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because by referencing souls, if he's saying souls, that means not bodies. So I know now from context that we are dealing with this realm. You see, and that's, that's precious to me. Now the particular souls that we're, that we're seeing here are the souls of the martyrs those who have died for their testimony of Christ. I don't think it's out of bounds. You can argue with me about this if you want to, but I just don't think it's out of bounds to apply this also to all Christians. The things I think that are being said about martyrs, in other words, are not different than, than my loved ones right now who are in heaven, not, not meaningfully. I think I'm going to make the application to them also. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Okay, observation, so turn the page. There may be more, but I'm just listing a dozen little things to pull out from the passage. First of all, we're told that they cried out. That, that gets my attention. And the reason it gets my attention is because these are disembodied souls. This means presumably they don't have what? Voice this stuff, <laughs> whatever it is. So I don't know, I'm asking the question, that this is why this is so challenging, is, it, is it, it ought to be strange and wrong for us to consider what a human being is like without a, without a, without a vocal cord thing here, without feet or hands or a body. I don't know what that's like. That's very, very mysterious to me. It's not comfortable. It's not something I yearn for. So my question is, can they talk in heaven if they don't have vocal cords or they have the ability somehow to talk? And I'm deducing from this that they must have the ability to talk. Now your question is, how are they going to talk if they don't have a voice, physically speaking? And my answer is, I do not know. That's what's so strange about this intermediate state is we know some information, but we don't know how they can talk. Are they given up? I don't know. So, number two. They cried out. 
honing in on the word cried. Now I know that John could have described this, if he's describing reality in heaven, he could have just said, they calmly said, how long, O Lord? He uses the word, I think it's kratzo, I don't have the Greek in front of me, but he uses the word that indicates what? It's not weep, um, but it is to, it's, it indicates yelling, crying out something. You can cry out something in victory or sorrow, but whatever it is, it seems to indicate to me a, a, a high degree of, of passion or emotion. Now, I find that to be very interesting. How, how many of you have the Stoic Buddhist notion in your mind that when you get to heaven, you'll be divorced now from all passion and feeling? And we'll sit and meditate and remove all that stuff from us. We don't, we're beyond that. We're beyond passion, longing, desires, even, uh, even sadness, perhaps, or grief of some sort or another. Apparently not. Apparently the souls in hell, uh, heaven, excuse me, are, are fully capable of emotion, strong, intense emotions. And by the way, so is God. God described all the time as not the stoic kind of God that's up on a mountain someplace, but the kind of passionate God that has, that has uh, grief and longing and joy and happiness and so on. He's full of emotions and he's created humans in his image with emotions. Number three, they cried out in a loud, singular word, voice. Now it's multiple people, multiple souls in heaven, and yet one voice. So maybe your question is, do, do the people right now in heaven, do they, do they know each other, do they interact, are they off by themselves, are they isolated, are they just with the Lord, are they with other people? And I'm just deducing from that little phrase that they must be with other souls and in some way they must interact with them in such a way that they all get on the same hymn. Like we're all going to sing this hymn, number 708. And so we have one voice. This is some cooperation going on. I can't tell you from this if, they, if they're reunited. I honestly can't tell you that they've been reunited with people they knew before, but I can't, I, just because it doesn't say um, in the new heavens and new earth, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, it's very clear that we'll be reunited with our loved ones and we should take great comfort, comfort one another with these words, says Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. But here, just that there's some kind of interaction, I just can't deduce if, if they know each other or how they know each other. Number four, just a kind of a question to take away from this. Does it look, does it sound to you as though they are conscious of what's going on or, if they, or that they're sleeping? Doesn't, doesn't look too much like they're sleeping, does it? It looks like they're very conscious of what's going on around it. I just point that out because there are significant Christian voices throughout history and some of you might have been taught by pastors, uh, probably good, well-meaning, godly pastors, uh, I was, I know, a very beloved pastor who had the belief that souls in heaven were, were unaware of what was going on. I, I was taught at one point that, uh, that I, I would die and then I'd be unconscious of anything, time, space, anything. And just like a snap of finger, all of a sudden I'd, I'd wake up and I'd be at the resurrection of the body on the last day. Just like that. No awareness. Does it sound like that fits here? Doesn't fit, does it? Doesn't. Get, they're, they're very much conscious of what's going on in that state. Aware of it. So our Lutheran Church teaches against what's called soul sleep. Uh, we teach body sleep, but not soul sleep. Soul's aware. Verse number five, O sovereign Lord. The only point here is that they're praying, aren't they? That's what's happening. We pray the same thing, O sovereign Lord. They're praying, and in particular, just if you would have kept going there, they're praying about things that are going on on earth. How much longer until you come and judge for the, uh, for the blood that was shed and such. So they're praying about matters concerning the earth. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, I understand we, we're careful uh, not to, we don't, we don't want to be perceived as having an idea that, that, that I think 
um, at least formerly, maybe presently, I don't know, that Roman Catholics pray to Mary or pray to certain saints. We're really careful that we don't pray to the saints because we don't have a promise that they can hear us. However, that does not mean that they're not praying for us. It's really clear here, isn't it, that they pray, and they pray directly to the Lord. Number six, how long? Well, now that's interesting, isn't it? Why is, it, why, why is that interesting? To me, it indicates that there are things that the souls in heaven do not know. They're asking how much longer. Does God know how much longer? Yes, he does. But they don't. Have you ever been told or heard that once you get to heaven, you'll have all the answers to your questions? You'll become immediately, you'll just zip down on you and you'll know everything? That's wrong. God is the only one who stands omniscient. We are not. We, we, will, we are not omniscient now, nor will we ever be. That's God's characteristic. We get to heaven, we will learn things. Number seven. Ooh, yeah. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood? Now, these are martyrs. So first of all, maybe I'll ask it this way. Does it sound... I don't think this indicates that they're somehow in pain or miserable or unhappy. It might sound that way. I don't think that's the case because we have other passages that indicate that there's no tears, etc. But does it sound to you like they're satisfied in heaven? It doesn't sound like it to me. It looks like they're... They, they may be perfectly happy and in bliss and with the Lord, but it sounds like they're waiting still for something. What do you, what do you figure they're waiting for? <clears throat> Justice, which will be brought about when? On Judgment Day. They're waiting for this day. Now, I, I, I'm curious as to why they don't say, how long, O oh Lord, before you rejoin us with our bodies? This is sort of a weird existence to be in without hands and feet. But that's not what they ask. They say, how long before you judge? which just indicates to me that they are yearning in heaven for this day, but, not, but yearning not in an, um, in an unhappy way. They're just, there's more for them. They're not complete. They're not done yet. They want their bodies. They want all things to be made well again, even on the, on the earth. <coughs> oh, yeah, here's a... Number eight, do they remember their lives on earth? Yeah, not only do they remember their lives, they remember the worst thing that ever happened to them, which is their martyrdom and death, their blood. So it must be then that the saints in heaven can have a perfect memory of really awful and terribly evil things and that it's still what? It's still heaven that doesn't encroach upon their happiness. See, I'd have thought, if I was just guessing without the word of God, I'd have thought that the Lord would bring me to heaven and do what? Kind of erase my, my hard drive and reprogram everything in so that I could remember the good stuff but not remember the, the evil things. Because I would ask, if I can remember all the evil things in my life, it couldn't be for me, it couldn't be what? Heaven. But apparently that's false. They do remember the evil things. And by the way, do the angels know and witness evil things? And they're in heaven. In fact, the Lord Jesus sees all kinds of evil things, and yet he's in the bliss of heaven. And so that's the way it'll be for us as well. We, 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 perfect happiness in heaven does not imply the, our unawareness of terrible things. Those can apparently exist alongside of each other. Okay, number nine. They were told, passive tense. Who did they ask? They asked the question, and who was it? Who were they asking? O sovereign Lord. We're told in verse, uh, or number nine, or whatever the verse is. They were told. Who's the one answering them? I'm led to believe it's the sovereign Lord. It's Jesus Himself who answers them. Now, in this life, you, and all, you all and I pray 
but we do not expect an answer audibly in our ears. We will go to the Word of God to find answers from God, but we, we, in, in this life right now, it's kind of a prayer as a, as a one-way track. We're praying, and then the Lord answers, but He doesn't answer audibly. In heaven, they're able to hear the Lord Jesus answer audibly. So there's an actual, inter there's prayer, but there's an interaction with Him. He answers their prayers. Number 10. until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Boy, there's a lot that you can do there. Let me, uh, maybe, I think, what's some of the implications of that phrase? You, if you say it, I'll repeat it so it gets onto the... What can I learn from until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete? Let's say that again. everybody gets to gets to heaven or until it's complete until everybody not, maybe not gets to heaven but is baptized we'll say it that way until everyone who's meant to be baptized is baptized that gives us a, a bit of an indication doesn't it as to why the Lord would, would wait why doesn't just come now and wrap this up so that we can go into the new heavens and the earth, new earth it's because the number is not yet complete there's still more people that he wants to baptize Okay? He, he affirms something here also. What? Maybe it's too obvious, I, but... There, oh, yeah, yeah. That martyrdom will continue. That's right. That martyrdom will continue through the entire era of the New Testament. That challenges post-millennialism. Millennialism, period. Yeah, that's correct. Thank you. You see what we're doing? How you when you when you take the knife over the top of the butt, you're just peeling off bits of truth. Um, he affirms. Let me just maybe say it this way. He, my mark on this is that he affirms there's going to be a judgment day coming. It is coming. It's not arbitrary. Um, and that things will be dealt with on the last day. We don't have to worry about that. They will be dealt with. Now, I understand, and I don't have a good answer for you. I understand if you're a little uncomfortable because what are they asking for? Vengeance. You think, hold it a second. Isn't vengeance wrong? Well, <clears throat> yeah, vengeance is wrong if, if what? if I do it. But it's not. The Bible design here is that vengeance is not wrong if God is the one doing it. And therefore, the design in the scriptures, if you read the Psalms, you will find yourself praying constantly for vengeance, but not seeking vengeance. You're praying and asking God. You're handing vengeance because vengeance belongs to me. I am the so when, I'm, when I hand over my anger, I've been sinned against in serious ways, I hand over my anger to the Lord, that's because I'm not, uh, I'm not executing vengeance myself. I'm letting him do it. And maybe in the process, I'm kind of advising him about how I think it would be best that he would do it. You ought to try this or that or this. Here's what I'd like to do if it was me, if you're asking this and this. But I'm not going to do it. I am going to smile and be kind, and I will forgive them, and I will let you handle this. And that's what's happening here, isn't it? Oh, Lord, we just assume have you do this sooner than later. How much longer is it going to be? Okay, number 11, a little longer. Uh, emphasis there on the word longer. That word implies time in the passage of time. I, look, I'm reading Gerhardt, and even Gerhardt, and I disagree with him on this. Um, I, I think, well, I could be, might be misreading him. But even Gerhardt's teaching that when we go to heaven, we'll live in eternity. And what eternity for him means is not time never ending, but the absence of time, period. Now, we're aware God lives in non-time 
for eternity. He's not subject to time. He's outside. In fact, time is, and space are one of those are two things that were created when he created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. But just because uh, it's described as eternity that we'll go to doesn't mean that we enter into an existence like God presently lives in apart from time. Eternity for us is time never ending. We were created to live inside of time. Adam and Eve were created to live in time. And so are we. And, they, and apparently the saints in heaven are recognizing time. Does it sound like they feel time? How much longer? How much longer? So I'm deducing there is time in heaven. There's days and seasons and such, just like there is now. And then verse or number 12, a little bit longer. That's the answer. A little, just a little longer. <laughs> well, they asked that. They made that prayer. Uh, what would be now, 19, depends on when it, about, just a little under 2,000 years ago. They've been there that whole time, so it's not yet been avenged. And yet the answer 2,000 years ago is, is it's going to be just a little bit longer. No sense that they haven't endured that now for 2,000 years, just like we have, because time passes. And yet for them, here's what I would deduce. For them, time is not uncomfortable. It's not long and difficult or boring or arduous. But their passage of time, especially in the company of, of God himself, is just a little bit. It won't be long, just a little bit. That's a meaningful answer. It's not that God is saying, it'll, you, you, it ought to feel like just a little bit of time. That's the way I feel it. He says to them, it's just a little bit of time. 2,000 years is just a little bit. Or longer, however much longer. Okay, so time is not long, it's not tedious. I think there's probably other things. Let me, I, I might have generated questions for you on this passage. I just think it's beautiful. Um, I, I want to know as much as I can about, about the people that I've buried, and I've got a lot of them. I want to know just, just what, what, they're, what they're experiencing right now, what is good about it, what, is, what they're waiting for. And I think this gives a lot, and as much as anywhere else in the Bible. So uh, any other further questions, on, maybe on the passage or anything? You, uh, you mentioned there, there isn't this idea of soul sleep from the Bible, um, but what would you say to someone who maybe looks forward to the idea of like resting forever because sleep in real life is like a nice break from, from life or something like that? Hebrews speaks extensively about the rest that we have in Christ. I don't think it's a physical rest, uh, like a sleeping. There's a difference between rest and sleep, isn't there? It seems to me that in Hebrews, when it speaks about resting, the rest, the location of rest is not in our body, but in our conscience. I think that's where I would locate it. That there is a restlessness when, when I have a burdened or dirty or guilty conscience. And that's why Hebrews urges us to enter that rest, not when we die, but right now. Enter his, and the promise of the rest stands now. And that is the rest of the Lord's gospel, the forgiveness of my sins. I, Chris, so Chris, I'm not, I, I, I affirm that the saints in heaven are resting. But I think it's the same kind of rest that we have now. They're not burdened by their sins and their conscience. The difference probably is that the devil right now is trying to always strip us of this rest or, or burden our conscience with our sins and our guilt. And our task then is to fight for a clean conscience and to enter the Lord's rest all the time. That's why we come to church and hear the gospel. Whereas that is not a task of the saints in heaven. That's that is not something they any longer have to work for. They have their rest there without fighting for it. We have to fight for it, according again from Paul and, Tim, and Timothy. So that I think that I would point somebody 
not to sleep, but to the gospel. If that, I don't know if that answers your question. Okay, other, other inquiries? Um, I think uh, just kind of a comment to go off of that as well as I've heard it described before as kind of the worldly idea of rest um, being more leisure and that there's a difference between like leisure, earthly leisure and rest, true rest in like scripture or the gospels or being in God's presence is filling whereas leisure can often leave you feeling empty. Um, you know, we think that like going on vacation need a vacation from the vacation when you come back uh, kind of idea. <laughs> yeah. um, that that is what leisure gets you of just kind of being idle or being, you know, filling yourself with that kind of stuff. But that true rest is fulfilling and not empty. Yeah, there's a, certainly over, overlap, isn't there? Um, I, I know what it is to be working and working and working and then to take a couple days off. And the Lord assumes I know that, and that's why he picks up the language, rest. But we, all, all I'm saying is that in this life, our rest is maybe never, there's nothing perfectly restful. But that the true rest is found in Christ and his forgiveness alone. Okay. Other questions? Thank you for Could we also say that's what Paul said to the Corinthians in his letters about being content where we're at? You know, you're content, you're giving yourself a little bit of rest, you're not worried about anything, you're happy where you are, to a, to a point, you know. Maybe there's some overlap. Um, In, in Christ and in his forgiveness, I can be content in my vocation that the Lord has, has, has put me in and not be thinking that I have to move around or do some more spiritual thing. I think probably that, maybe that's what Paul is pushing at. That's a, that's a component of it, I think. It's probably not the same thing. So. Okay, let me, let, me, uh, let me check first of all my time. We're going to 11, what did you say again? 11.45? Okay. A little bit of time. Letter E, can they see or hear us? <clears throat> I don't know the answer to this question. I, I'm, I'm just giving you some passages that might indicate some things. Um, this is from Luke chapter 15, and it's meant to be paired together with chapter, uh, 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 chapter 15, verse 10. It's in the same set of parables. You might remember this Luke 15 parables. There's three of them, the parable of the lost lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son, or the prodigal son. <clears throat> in verse 7, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. So I know what I'm dealing with here. I'm dealing with heaven presently, the present heaven, over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. But you look at verse 10 then, the, the language, it's the same idea, because this now follows the second parable, but the language is a little bit different. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And that's in verse 10. Now that's interesting. What is this joy that happens before the angels of God? It means that the joy isn't coming from the angels, is it? In verse 7, maybe it was the angels who were rejoicing in addition to God over sinners who repent on earth and come to faith in Christ. But here I'm told in verse 10 that there's some sort of rejoicing that happens in the presence of the angels. That must be from beings that are not themselves angels, some other kind of beings. And I would suggest, though I can't prove it, can I? Because I don't know what sorts of beings exhaustively are in heaven. But I would suggest to you this very well may be a description of the saints that are in heaven right now. Or the souls that are in heaven. And if, if you're with me on that, if you can agree with that, then that would then indicate, wouldn't it, that the souls in heaven have some sense by communication or by seeing it of some of the things that are going on in this world. It's not sealed off to them, the events that are going on in the world. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know how they would get this information. It'd be really easy simply to conclude that since they're right there with Jesus and Jesus is communicating with them directly, he can tell them. Either that or, he can, or they can actually see it happening. 
which may be, I, that I'm aware of, there's nothing in the Bible indicating that the saints in heaven can't witness some of the things that are going on in the world. I don't have a Bible reason not to, to, to say that can't happen. Whatever the case, even if it's just that Jesus is informing them, that would be something like, that's, I think that's just beautiful. That, that would mean, uh, so, um, that would mean, I, 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 so I have children, and they're, they're, they're when they get baptized, my grandparents didn't get a chance to see my, my children baptized, right? Uh, and so it might be that Jesus comes <clears throat> to my grandma and my grandpa and says to them, hey, uh, Jared's daughter was born a few days ago, and just today she was baptized. That means she's brought, she's been brought to repentance and faith. And she'll be coming here soon. And then what would they do? They would rejoice in heaven over one sinner who repents. See? So they may be told. Now, the flip side of that is that they might be told if I decided not to baptize them too. In which case they'd be pleading in heaven to the Lord that their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will be brought to baptism. That's it. Now, I don't know how much they're aware. I'm just, I'm, I'm doing the most I can with these passages here on a, on a kind of a tough subject. Let me move to Hebrews 12. But can't that kind of be with um, Lazarus and the rich man? I mean, that's where the rich man There you go. Um, when the rich man asked uh, for the tip of his thing, I can't recall the whole story now, but yeah. you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. Now, so what's your question about that? Oh, well, that kind of implies that he could see what was going on yeah. with his brothers. Yeah, isn't that something? Now, he's in hell there, of course, so what you've got... What you have is Lazarus with Abraham in the present heaven and the rich man in Hades uh, according to their souls. It's very bizarre because he does say he's thirsty and that he's in the flame. All that seems to f sound to me like he's got bodily pain that's going on. I think it's tough, though. I want to caution you on Luke 16. That's a parable of the Lord, and it is debatable how many of those details in a parable like that we can press as describing the actual heaven and hell that are going on. I think there's some things we can draw from it, but I just don't want to push every detail. And one detail I don't necessarily want to push is that the rich man is able to see up into heaven and see Lazarus there. I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to conclude that he can see him or yell at Abraham or make petitions to Abraham or to God or that he knows anything about his brothers and it would be tough for me to push those details. Uh, that's a, but that's a, I think you're on the right track with asking questions like that. Let me look at Hebrews 12. Remember, this is, um, this is following that lengthy description of all the Christians in heaven. Uh, oh, excuse me, all the Christians who with faith waited for their reward of heaven. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. This is among the most beautiful pictures in the entire Bible. We're given the picture here in Hebrews 12 of some sort of a race, of a, like a stadium 
where a, where a massive race is coming to a conclusion. I made my picture, I've got like the Summer Olympics where, you know, if they run a marathon, they're out running in the streets all over the country. But the last little bit is in a stadium. They enter a stadium and they've got to run around or something and that's where the finish line is. But they're tired at this point. Their, their legs are just lead. And now they enter a stadium and there's a bunch of what around them? People witnessing the conclusion of the race. And they can see the finish line at this point. This, I think, is the image that Paul is giving to us. So he tells us, we're since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let me pause there, let me, let me stop and skip that, I'll come back to it. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Oh, hold on, hold on a second. So we've just given a, 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 a list of all the Christians of the Old Testament who have already completed their race. And he had listed in a number of instances the suffering or difficulty that they'd gone through. But they've now completed their race, and apparently they now go up into the stands in the stadium, and they watch as everybody else finishes their race. They don't yet enter their reward, but they pause and they wait while everyone finishes. At the very end of Hebrews 11, uh, Paul had to, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. Paul had said, uh, they haven't entered because God saw fit, something like this, that we would all enter together at the same time into our reward. <laughs> so they've got to wait and watch people finish the race so that we can all enter the reward at the same time. Now, what does it say? While we're running, we should not have too much weight on our legs or trying to carry around backpacks and so on if we're trying to run to finish a race. And sins which cling to us and weights and so forth are not helpful. So Paul says, cast off sins. They just make it so it's harder to run. And he said, therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's an actual track that I'm to just keep on, keep going. And my eyes are supposed to stay where? I'm looking to the finish line, but he doesn't say, keeping your eyes on the finish line, he says, looking to Jesus. Now, later on, it's going to say that Jesus is the one that set me on this racetrack. He's the one who set the course and himself ran it and endured it, despising the shame, suffered for our sins upon the cross. His race now is done. He has me on a race course. So he was at the back, he was at the starting line and said, go. And then he's also where? at the finish line, waiting for me. Set your eyes, uh, run the race, looking to Jesus, who's there at the finish line. And, I, and that's what gives me endurance to keep slogging through. Now, one other detail that we're told should give me endurance is that the people in the stands are cheering. They're here called witnesses, looking uh, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of... Now, who's that? That's, that's all the people who've already finished their, their race. Now, does this imply that they can see us running our race? It subtly implies it, doesn't it? In some sense. Now, I don't know. Does that mean that my grandma is watching everything? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not sure I know. But, in, but this, Paul is leading me to conclude that she's probably aware of some things if she's a witness of my running. I think the salutary benefit here is that while I'm running, I'm oftentimes tempted by sin and I want to quit or just take a break. In my Christian living and life and clinging to Christ and looking to Him, and I'm to imagine that, that the saints of the Old Testament and my own saints are there cheering for me. Keep going. Keep running. So I, I picture a lot of times, I, I picture Moses saying, look, I wasted an awful lot of my young life. I'm here. Keep running. Or there's David who says, hey, look, 
I did some awful things. I let my eyes go this direction and that direction for, I made it. You can to keep running, keep looking to Jesus. And I'm picturing my saints uh, that have gone before me and they're cheering me. They're saying, we, we, it, it's worth it. We ran, we were tired, we finished. It's worth running, keep, keep going. I, that's the indication. Since we are now surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every weight and the sin that so easily entangles and run, run, setting your eyes on Jesus. That's encouraging, I think. I'm just pointing out that it implies that it could be that the saints are aware to some extent, and even that would then what? <laughs> Make me want to run even harder. Look, there's a rest. Uh, it's a rest of the conscience. But Paul says in Hebrews, make every effort to enter that rest. So even the, the entering of, of his rest is is work and, and it's godly work and he's the one who wills to work underneath of us. So, okay, uh, questions on those passages. And we've got, we got now to the end of that section in, in just enough time. So We did one section and what I know I was scheduled to do in two. But what it would mean is that I don't have as much time to talk about hell. I'm not, and I mean this, I'm not saying this lightly, I don't like that much to talk about hell. We do it because Jesus does a, a lot. So it's, a, it's necessary, but I've given myself not as much time to talk about it, so that's fine. What questions do you have before we break? Very good. I think it's lunchtime, but I don't know what the um, agenda is. Should we say a prayer? Okay. And then what, before we say the prayer, are there instructions for lunch? Uh, we'll just make, you all know how to do this better than I do, visitor. So we'll pray for the food and then we'll break for the day. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks most heartily this day for your providence over all of our needs of body and soul that you've given us the hope of everlasting life in heaven and a great, great inheritance and a reward. We ask you to sustain us on our way now in particular, we give you thanks for the food that you prepared for us today and the company that you've surrounded us by. We ask that you would keep us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Thank you for your attention. Reconvene it. I've got on my schedule 1 o'clock. I think I'm not wrong about that. Reconvene at 1 o'clock.